Hello, and welcome to The Travelcast, episode 385. The Travelcast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week, we bring you an original Drabblecast commissioned story by Rachel K. Jones called The Innsmouth of the South. I think you're going to love it. Rachel did a great job of exploring the idea of authenticity with this story, which is an interesting angle to look at when thinking about Lovecraft for a couple of reasons. One, Lovecraft's body of work has spawned an unbelievable amount of mythos-inspired writing from other authors, ranging from derivative fanfic pastiche to full-blown awesome sauce like the Drabblecast's own epic, mythos-inspired Lewis Carroll H.P. Lovecraft space opera series written by Elizabeth Baer and Sarah Manette, stories Mongoose, Boojum, and The Wreck of the Charles Dexter Ward. Those are episodes 170, 202, and 254, if you haven't heard them already, and want to check them out. Easily some of our most popular stories. So, here we are, well over a century later, and imitation and authenticity are as much a part of Lovecraft's mythos as giant squid-headed monstrosities from the deep. An open-source fiction universe. Come play with us, Danny. Also relevant to the question of what is real and what is fake, and is particularly ironic in light of our story this week, is that if Lovecraft had one consistent thread to all of his writing, it was the Gnostic view that understanding the true nature of the world around you is to be destroyed by it. The laws of reality are anything but absolute, and that knowledge transforms the knower, and not in a good way, either in a dead way, an insane way, or a fish monster kind of way generally. I also love the setting of this story, and I won't go into it, but if you've read much Lovecraft before, you know that Homeboy was big on setting, and by that I mean New England specifically. But I've already gone on too much. You'll hear from Rachel herself after this week's story in an author's note. I'll let her do the talking. Rachel K. Jones is a science fiction and fantasy author. Her fictions appeared or is forthcoming in Lightspeed, Accessing the Future, Strange Horizons, Podcastle, Escape Pod, The Travelcast, Intergalactic Medicine Show, Cross Genres, Daily Science Fiction, and Penumbra. She has a degree in English and is currently pursuing a second degree in speech-language pathology. She lives in Athens, Georgia with her husband and perpetual alpha reader, Jason. You can follow her on Twitter at Rachel K. Jones. The story's read to you by Summer Brooks. Summer's a bit of a television addict and enjoys putting her sci-fi media geek skills to good use in interviewing guests. She's been a co-host for Slice of Sci-Fi from 2005 to 2009, the co-host for The Babylon Podcast from 2006 to 2012, and the host of Kick-Ass Mystic Ninjas before returning to Slice of Sci-Fi full-time as host and producer. She's an avid reader and writer of science fiction, fantasy, and thrillers, with a handful of publishing credits to her name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy tale and a B-movie monster extravaganza. Currently, Summer designs and maintains websites for clients, in addition to having fun with the Slice of Sci-Fi websites, and also does voiceover and narrations for Tales to Terrify, Starship Sofa, and Escape Pod. The story is produced by Drabblecast producer Adam Pratt. So... Without further ado, we bring you The Innsmouth of the South by Rachel K. Jones. Innsmouth of the South by Rachel K. Jones. 
At Rilia Funland, you never entered the tower unless summoned. That's because our boss, Mr. Watley, no relation to those Watleys, you know the ones, only called people up for one of three things, to chew you out, scapegoat you, or fire you. So when he called Levon over the loudspeakers, I knew nothing good would come of it. I kept one eye on the tower from my concessions booth, the Innsmouth Look, where I served up fried calamari, sashimi, and other assorted not-so-authentic Savannah, Georgia delicacies. Of all the attractions in the park, the tower was the biggest eyesore, the sort of thing imagined by people who vaguely knew the word Lovecraftian, but had never actually bothered to read anything by the man. The tower had a certain gothic sensibility, sure, all soaring spires and flying buttresses and period-appropriate ogavales over the windows. But the park's designers had also slapped on fake blood, skulls, and some tacky plastic bats on strings, like the kind you find in a low-budget Halloween prop shop. It completely ruined the effect. Levon shambled back from her meeting with the boss, still wearing her shugoth suit, minus the hood, which made it look like the monster was devouring her feet first. A dad trailing twin girls stopped her for a picture, but she threw him a look so withering he scooted along toward the Mountain of Madness, our most unstable roller coaster. It had a bat wing inversion after its second drop and a low center of gravity, which gave writers whiplash. I let Levon into the little kitchen where we battered and fried the calamari for the Cthulhu Cthambo. She wet some paper towels in the sink, mopped up the worst of her running mascara, and began picking at the eyeballs that hid the Shugoth suit's zippers. Come on, Carl, help a girl out. God, Levon, what happened? I worked the flimsy zippers gently so they wouldn't jump their tracks. Levon was far less gentle. A fabric eyeball ripped and fluttered to the floor. She kicked the torn bits underneath the counter. Mr. Watley happened, that's what. He fired me. I asked to trade shifts with Mickey this Saturday for my graduation. Just a couple hours so my daughter can see me walk across the stage. That's important. She needs to know we put education first in our house, even without her dad around. Especially without her dad. He fired you for that? Levon worked harder than anyone I knew. After her husband died in Iraq, she began attending design classes at SCAD. She wanted to do costume design on set for movies someday. She'd even designed some of our costumes, the Shogoths and the Migo and a few of the cultists. The real kicker? I put in for the time off months ago, Levon continued. Bastard damn well knows I wanted it. He knows. But the new schedule went up, and guess who's been assigned head priestess at the 8 p.m. Esoteric Order of Dagon Parade? She ripped the last zipper open, and the shugoth pulled on the floor around her ankles. She beat lint from the t-shirt and shorts she wore underneath. Ugh, this crap is all through my weave now. I hunted for bits of shugoth lint clinging between her braids. So there wasn't anyone to cover for you? No, that's the thing. I'd already worked it out with Mickey. She'd be priestess on Saturday, and I'd take Asenath Waite on the Miskatonic U-Tours on Sunday. We're the same size, so we could costume swap, no problem. 
but Mr. Watley said nobody would find me believable as Asenath. Lavon rolled her eyes. You know, because he can cast white people as offensive Native American stereotypes, but nobody can buy a black Asenath for one afternoon. You told him that? I whistled. Damn, girl. You got more balls than I do. See where it got me? Lavon wiped her eyes. Should have kept my mouth shut a little longer. Can't afford to be out of work. Hey, you're graduating. You'll land something a whole lot better with your new degree. It was almost 2 p.m. and I hadn't served up any calamari in over an hour. The display plate had acquired a moving coat of flies. Tell you what, first shift's ending soon. Let's round up the crew and knock off a little early. We should celebrate. Lavon gave me the barest hint of a smile, which made me feel all warm and tickly. Truth be told, I had a small crush on Lavon that liked to flare up whenever she kicked tentacles and eyeballs into the sludge beneath the kitchen counter. Sure, I'd like that. I thought they grossly oversold Rillier Funland. The Innsmouth of the South, Mr. Watley called it. Except he pronounced Innsmouth so it rhymed with South and wouldn't let anyone correct him. Not that the average tourist knew or cared. They only came because it was cheaper than a ghost tour for a family of six in downtown Savannah and you don't have to pay for parking. And you could get a bumper sticker that said, Real yeah, y'all, even if most of them didn't get the joke. We collected Patricia and Talon from Miskatonic U and Lavon's best friend Mickey from the Nameless City. On the way out the gaping tentacled demon mouth entrance, we passed Reverend Pete waving a Bible and shouting himself hoarse at the patrons in the ticket line. Reverend Pete wasn't really on staff. He hailed from the local independent Bible church. He'd been protesting the park on the grounds of satanic influence since the day it opened. Mr. Watley thought he added to the ambiance, and besides, we didn't have to pay him anything, so he let the reverend stay. Boss even let us walk out a complimentary water to him when the days got midsummer hot, that sticky, miserable southern heat that made you want to die just so they'd bury you beneath a nice cool slab of marble. I waved at Reverend Pete. Howdy, Reverend. How goes the sermonizing? Reverend Pete's eyebrows bore down like thunderheads. Through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, he shouted, flushing redder as he gained steam. And he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. Yeah, sure, I said. Look, Reverend, we're knocking off a little early to have a beer with Levon. It's her last day. You want to come with? No drunkard shall inherit the kingdom of God, the reverend said archly. I'm bringing lemonade, said Mickey. I don't mind sharing. It'd be nice to have another teetotaler in the mix. She was three months pregnant and had given up beer. It must have been a tiring business being Reverend Pete. A whole theme park full of demons to condemn, but we were just regular people in costumes scraping by under a terrible boss. Hard to hate someone who offered you a lemonade. But Reverend Pete was just taking orders himself in his own way, so we didn't mind when he quietly tagged along. We met at our favorite drinking spot by the Savannah River, where you could dangle your legs over the dock and toss back a six-pack of Terrapin reclaimed rye. We shared around a pound of chocolate pralines from the confectionery on River Street. 
Mickey split Can Minute Maid with the Reverend, while LaVon regaled us with a reenactment of her firing. Everyone had a Mr. Watley horror story. Mickey had gotten relegated to playing Amigo when she told him she was pregnant. Nobody wants to see fat girls, he'd said. Patricia had just been promoted to assistant manager, only to find she was now Mr. Watley's favorite scapegoat to corporate. Mr. Watley had asked Talon to pose for some promotional photos, which Talon later found slapped across all Mr. Watley's online dating profiles. Even Reverend Pete had his opinions on the man of iniquity prowling uncostumed amongst the lambs, or such. I'm not sure I followed his complaint, but it sounded pretty bad, even by Pete's standards. Lavon just shook her head and opened another beer. That park's too damn big. Nobody knows the half of what goes on there. How about you, Carl? I had Mr. Watley stories for days but none of them captured my secret resentment, the injury he'd inflicted upon my soul. I used to like Lovecraft, I admitted. He was my favorite author. I've read the collected works cover to cover at least five times. I own every issue of Weird Tales with a Lovecraft story in it, the vintage ones from the 1930s. I got a tattoo of the yellow sign on my palm when I graduated high school. I had a Lovecraft-themed birthday party when I was 13 and lost all my friends over it because their parents thought I was a Satanist. And you know what? I didn't care because the mythos was awesome. Yes, Lovecraft had serious racism issues, and his expansive purple prose was surpassed only by his fear of miscegenation. But ultimately, the mythos was bigger than the sum of its parts. I didn't need friends who couldn't understand that. I have a degree in mechanical engineering, you know. I should be designing those rides. With the market so bad, I took the job at Really F Funland, figuring it's the closest I'll ever come to actually living in the mythos. Hoped I'd be first in line when the engineering team at corporate had an opening, but that's all over now. It was probably the beer, but tears stung my eyes, and the wind dragged them out sideways. Someone should teach him a lesson, said Mickey. Put the fear of God into him. Fear the elder gods, maybe, Patricia squinted out over the river. We could put out the word online for people to show up dressed as cultists, parade around like they work there. Mr. Watley won't know who he can legally yell at. Maybe he'll screw up, get sued. There's 30 gallons of visceral ooze in the Ugoth zone left over from Halloween said Talon. It wouldn't be hard to pump it into the ventilation system of his tower. It'll come down in strings from the air vents. Psst, y'all are such amateurs. Lavon opened her satchel and pulled out a high-end Necronomicon from the gift shop, latex faces screaming from its imitation human skin cover. Let's just skip the middle, man, and summon Cthulhu like good old Relief Funland staffers. She flipped open the Necronomicon and began to read. Punglui Mugglenuff Cthulhu Real Yeah Wagglenoggle Fathoggin. Her savannah drawl sapped all the terror out of it. It was terrible, and we all laughed our asses off. You're cute when you Fathoggin, I teased. 
But that's what it looks like, said Lavon. You try and do better. But before she could pass me the book, Reverend Pete bore down all angry-like and snatched it from her hands. He looked pissed. At first, I thought we'd offended him on account of his religious beliefs, which made me feel bad since I'd invited him. The last thing I wanted was to make him uncomfortable. I thought he was going to chuck the Necronomicon into the Savannah River, but instead he flipped it open and trailed a finger down the page. That ain't no way to read an invocation. I'll show you how to do it proper. Then he thundered out a cultist chant that put the rest of us to shame. Fumu Mulnaf Cthulhu Rulya Walnav Fatan. I guess all that time in the pulpit really did build talent. Wow, I said, because what else could you say? There was some scattered clapping. Wow, man, have a beer, said Talon. Thanks. Reverend Pete accepted the beer, but set it down untasted. He probably didn't have many friends and was therefore more susceptible to the forces of peer pressure. Thunder growled in the distance. Looks like rain, said Mickey. I'd better scoot, said Lovon. We all scattered before the rain got worse. Out over the river, I thought I saw hissing steam and bubbles. A wood duck plished into the water and didn't resurface. I pulled up my hood and walked to the bus stop, letting the thunderstorm pour over me. The raindrops felt unclean. They left a slick, oily feeling on my skin and a rank fishy odor that wouldn't wash out even with a hot shower. I was ten minutes late to work the next morning. Mr. Watley hunched over the kitchen counter in my booth, picking tiny white worms from sashimi with a pair of tweezers. He was a pale, curdled-looking fellow with greasy black hair, like Benedict Cumberbatch left in the sun too long. You're late. He stacked the dewormed tuna slices on the cutting board. Sorry. Power went out in last night's storm and it reset my alarm. I opened the freezer to get the frozen calamari, but nasty octopus water sloshed out, wetting my shoes. I don't want to hear your dumb excuses. Even a nerd like you should be capable of arriving to work on time. He shoved the tweezers into my hands. Half a worm speared on the tip. I don't have time for this fiddly stuff. It's your job. Get your act in order, Carl, or you're out. I didn't dare point out the danger of serving warm, wormy sashimi to the customers, never mind the calamari unthawing all night in the broken fridge. I tried another tactic. Can you have someone run out for more fish later? This won't get us through the lunch rush. Mr. Watley curdled a little more. Every time he had to do his job instead of pawning it off on someone else, he got a little more acidic. I'll send out the janitor. Instead, a new staffer turned up, a man with the best Innsmouth fish person costume I'd ever seen. Green scales peeked out from beneath his black hood. He'd even thought to apply latex gills to his neck, although I only caught flashes when he turned his head. He had huge, unsettling eyes that never seemed to blink enough, and a voice like church bells tolling in the distance. The master sent me to assist you, he said. Cool, I'm Carl. What's your name? Wilbur, 
said the new guy. His eyes blinked sideways, closing corner to corner instead of top to bottom. I'd never seen that particular special effect before, but it didn't surprise me too much. We always had a few hires that got into character and stayed there. Nice job on the eyes, I said. Thanks. We're still waiting on the delivery. Can you clean up the counter while I work the fryer? He took the plate of worm bits and scraped them into his mouth, licking the platter clean. Gonna give you the runs later, I told him. Doubt tugged at my mind. I recalled Patricia's drunken revenge plan. Hey, did Mr. Watley hire you or did... I mean, was there something posted online? Wilbur just smiled at me, blinked sideways, and straightened the soy sauce packets up front. At least he was good with the customers. Mr. Watley must have hired a bunch of people after his firings the other day, or else Patricia had carried through with her threat to recruit Craigslist randos. I ran into a lot of unfamiliar sorts who'd been let loose without proper orientation. Over at the non-Euclidean nightmare plane, a hall of mirrors with some gelatinous animatronic fungi suspended from the ceiling. The lights had broken, so you just got a few flickers in the center of the maze. And some greenhorn was stalking tourists, scratching at the walls and panting until they ran out raving. There was more of the same all over the park. Too many shoggoths, too many cultists, everyone terrorizing the tourists willy-nilly until they thinned out, and it was just employees milling around, not exactly pulling their own weight when it came to puke cleanup. After lunch, I caught Wilbur in the kitchen chewing on Levon's discarded shoggoth suit, which had soaked up a bunch of octopus water because I'd forgotten she'd stashed it on the floor. What the hell, man? Wilbur stopped gnawing on the fake eyeball and blinked sideways with those two wide eyes. It tastes like one of the others, he said. What's that supposed to mean? I yanked the suit away from him. An eyeball caught and tore on his pointy teeth. This doesn't belong to you. Wilbur licked his lips. The master awaits the gathering of the faithful before it bestows the final reward. Look, I love this place as much as anyone, but you've got to knock that off when you're in employee areas or nobody will take you seriously, I told him. The torn Velcro shoggoth eyeballs stuck to my sleeves. Outside the booth, the loudspeakers crackled, announcing the midday esoteric Order of Dagon parade. Wilbur's eyes widened until it looked like they might roll out. We have been summoned to the tower! He flung open the door and charged towards Mr. Watley's office. I raced after him, suppressing laughter. Wait, that's just a parade. It happens twice a day. But everything had gone all wrong outside. Huge crowds of people streamed toward the tower all wearing the cheap monogrammed cultist bathrobes the gift shop sold. I couldn't tell the staffers from the tourists anymore. It looked like the midday parade, another Dagon sacrifice, except I didn't see any high priestess leading the Ia Ia chorus. Above the tower, thunderheads gathered and swirled, heavy and violet. Flecks of rain pattered into the dirt. The 
droplets held their shape like jello. I nudged one with my boot. It quivered and hissed against the rubber, burning a hole in the toll. Acid. No way that was special effects. I pushed and shoved a path through the ecstatic chanting cultists. The crowd thinned as we approached the tower. That's when I spotted Levant standing on the landing beneath the flying buttresses and fake bats, shouting at Mr. Watley. I want my fucking paycheck, said Levant. You don't get to just fire me without paying me for hours worked. I can if I fire you for cause. Mr. Watley seemed oblivious to the crowd around him. His default mode for handling any crisis at the park was just ignoring stuff until it got so bad he had to notice, and the swirling vortex overhead was still a few shades short of apocalyptic. What cause could you possibly have? I've been a model employee for two years now. You should return all the costumes I made, too. Nobody paid me for those. You don't own them. Just try to prove it. Take my property and the police will be at your door. Who do you think they'll believe anyway? He spun on his foot and tried to slam the faux stone off his door, but Levon wedged her foot in. I'm warning you, she said. Thunder boomed again. As one, all the cultists began chanting. I didn't recognize the words. It wasn't the famous Cthulhu chant we always did, but something inhuman, produced deep in the throat with not enough vowels and too many apostrophes for comfort. It made my skin crawl. The whirling thunderheads coalesced to a point like the pupil of a great eye. The aperture split open, drawing back, unveiling a dark that was darker than any earthly twilight of prehistoric caves winding through the rocks like tracks of ancient worms. No, this was darkness that destroyed all hope, the dark that dwelled beyond the gates of time and space. Something awful slithered from that darkness, something long and white and covered in Icarus slime. It crawled around and around the tower, knocking down the fake bats, cutting into the cheap plastic facade with thousands of hook-tipped legs. Huge, tusk-like teeth, serrated on all sides, stuck out from what must be its head. Master! The cultist chanted. Master! Master! I searched through all the Lovecraft stories I could remember, trying to identify this thing. Yashtur, worm god of the lords of Thule, rival of Nyarlathotep, Kram Kruak, Idya, bride of Cthulhu, Erlim Shakorth, the white worm. Lovecraft sure loved his worm gods. It didn't matter because the horror had slithered between Levon and Mr. Watley. She fell backward, scrambled on her hands to my side. To my surprise, I realized the others had joined us too. Patricia, Mickey, Talon, and even Reverend Pete, who wasn't wearing a wristband and therefore was technically trespassing. It knows we summoned it, whispered Pete. We spake the words, blood calls to blood. In the right time and place, Pete would have made an excellent cultist. He had the proper skill set. Talon wiped sweat from his forehead with his Vidora brim. What's the rule about these situations? You serve Cthulhu and your reward is he eats you first? Pretty sure that's not Cthulhu, said Mickey. 
Lavon jerked her chin at me. Carl's the expert. Everyone expected me to do something. Even the cultist, who had a whole evil god to ogle. It sucked being the hero of a Lovecraft story, because your only options were to get eaten or go mad, and I liked my body and brain intact, thank you very much. The real fun of Lovecraft was gawking at those poor saps and feeling relieved it wasn't you. So I decided to take a page out of Mr. Watley's book. I shifted the blame. Y'all, it seems what we've got on our hands is a job interview. New management. Follow my lead. I approached the two creatures oozing from the tower. One was a pale, gibbering blight upon nature, monstrously indifferent to all human suffering it caused. The other was an elder god. O oh, great one, we are but humble servants, unworthy of your attention. We summoned you, O oh, great one, at the behest of our master, who stands there at the foot of his dark tower. I pointed a finger at Mr. Watley. It would have been more dramatic without the Shugoth eyeballs velcroed to my arm. But the great worm wasn't buying what I was selling, because it unfurled its proboscis and spat more sizzling gelatinous acid which melted some of the plastic bats littering the ground around the tower. That might have begun my descent into madness or excruciating death had it not been for Reverend Pete. I'd never seen the man so full of fight. Hellfire danced in his eyes and his Bible looked twice as big... Wait, no. It was just a gift shop Necronomicon. Whoa! He thundered, his voice bouncing and echoing off all the park's cheap's facades. Woe to the false shepherd that destroys and scatter the sheep of the pasture! Wherefore his way shall be unto him as slippery ways in the darkness. He shall be driven on and fall therein. He threw the Necronomicon toward the tower. It whistled right under the creature's slithering bulk and flopped open at Mr. Watley's feet. Behold, the man of iniquity standeth in his crumbling kingdom. All those pretty shalls and woes succeeded where I'd failed. Even monstrous worm creatures know that mad doomsday prophets always tell the truth. It twitched its big head around to look at Mr. Watley, who was trying to slam the door shut again. The creature tore the door off its hinges with one hooked leg. I'm not in charge of them. I don't even know them. But he was the one standing in the dark tower, so it was like blaming your farts on the dog when you only had a Roomba. The nightmarish worm bestowed upon him the ultimate reward and devoured him. It was every inch as gruesome as you can imagine. Through the monster's translucent skin, you could see bits of Mr. Watley traveling through its digestive tract piece by piece, ahead of the rest of Mr. Watley, who gawked and screamed, watching his own progression. It looked a little like roller coaster carts climbing up and up the tower. When it had finished its meal, the worm crawled right into the managerial tower, pulling the broken door closed behind it. The swirling storm crackled out and dispersed. The sun even came out. I'm pretty sure I saw a rainbow. At that point, it seemed safe to clock out and head home for the night. So we did. When your boss dies from Necronomicon-related causes at a Lovecraft theme park, it's hard to decide whether you should return to clean out your locker in the morning 
or just sleep in and update your resume. I guess my dedication for all things Lovecraftian won out because I drove back to the park just a couple hours late for my shift. The ticket line ran out the doors and down the sidewalk. I'd never seen so many patrons. Reverend Pete worked the line with a shiny new gold-edged Bible and his very best doomsday voice. I'd never seen him so happy. He could finally rail against an actual demonic monster and he wasn't about to waste the opportunity. What happened to the monster? I asked Pete. He nodded toward the tower. The monster had cocooned it in thick gray webbing. Bits of the stuff fluttered all over the park and stuck to everything, smelling of mildew and old graves. Got ourselves a real blasphemy beast right there. I read all about it in Revelations. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, just like the good book says. No, Pete, we already had the hand stamps before, I told him, but nothing I said was going to kill his joy today. Mickey and Patricia cordoned off the entrance to the tower, but left space for tourists who wanted a good photo op. I guess the worm is in charge now, said Patricia. It won't leave the tower. It's been quiet ever since it ate Mr. Watley. Looks like a cocoon. Elder gods can sleep for a long, long time, you know, I said. Whole lifetimes. Even though the new management was a nightmare creature which hailed from an unknown terror realm, it brought a lot of positive changes to the park, enough so corporate never made a fuss about Mr. Watley's absence especially since they didn't have to pay it. Its cultist retinue made staffing issues a problem of the past. Those of us who cared about paychecks got raises. LaVon played Asenath Waits while she applied to costuming jobs, and now she's out in Los Angeles doing zombies for next summer's blockbuster hit. I miss her, but she's invited me to visit when I can. Patricia ranked highest on the managerial ladder, so she assumed most of Mr. Watley's responsibilities, like making the schedule and payroll, although not his office. Mickey quit the park altogether after her baby was born and took a gig doing ghost tours. They paid better, and you could collect tips from drunk tourists. As for me, I've handed off the Innsmouth look to Talon, so I can take over ride design. I want to build a coaster called the Lurking Fear around the Worms Tower. It's going to be red carts in a clear structure climbing up and rushing down and inverting at the doorstep. So your stomach falls into your shoes when you just glimpse something pulsing and slithering inside the gray webbed cocoon. Only, I know better than to get too close. After all, at Relief Funland, you never enter the tower unless summoned. Hello, Drabblecast listeners. This is Rachel K. Jones, author of The Innsmouth of the South, and I've been asked to share a little about the origins of the story. This story is set locally to where I live. In Athens, we have this big Halloween parade every year called the Wild Rumpus. You show up in a Halloween costume at the meeting point, and you march in the parade through downtown, hand out candy to the kids, 
And at the end of the parade route, there's this big outdoor music festival. My friends and I love to go every year. It's always a good time. So one year, we decided we wanted a really good group costume that would be easy for lots of people to throw together at the last minute. And if you live in the South, one common thing you see from time to time in big cities are these street corner preachers with megaphones and big aggressive protest signs that are designed to be really nasty and tasteless to try to get a rise out of you. If you think Westboro Baptist Church, you'll know what I mean. So somebody suggested we all be Cthulhu cultists, only in a style like those street preachers. We'd all carry big Lovecraft-themed protest signs about how Cthulhu will devour you all and verses from the Necronomicon and stuff like that. So we got together a big group of people, all doing these costumes, and we marched in the parade, and it was such a blast. And we got lots of laughs from people who got the joke. But the best part was when we got to the end of the parade, and who do we find but a group of actual street preachers with actual protest signs standing on the corner by the concert with a megaphone and they're shouting nasty slogans at the crowd and the crowd is shouting back at them. Um, So we see this and we figure, hey, one group is a bunch of angry cultists of an evil god and the other worships Cthulhu. So obviously we should join forces. So we fanned out on either side of them with our signs, faced out at the crowd, and began chanting Cthulhu Fatagen. And our signs matched so perfectly that you actually couldn't tell we weren't part of the same group without doing a double take. But the best part was the main preacher's reaction. He looked all around at us, and then he puts down his megaphone, and then he starts dying of laughter. He could not keep a straight face. And right at that second, a local reporter from one of the papers wandered by and saw us all together and asked if he could get a picture of us. And we ended up getting the picture, and it was awesome. And ever since that day, I've always wanted to write that preacher into a story where he's the unlikely ally of some Lovecraft cultists for some reason. And so when Norm asked me to participate in the Drabblecast Lovecraft Month, I figured that this was the time to tell that story. Uh, Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the story, and thanks for listening. Love it. Great story, talented author, happy ending. Which is rare in these kinds of stories, you might imagine. Thanks for writing that for us, Rachel. Oh, you know what else is fun that we do this time of year? H.P. Lovecraft's gibbering, maddening Mad Libs. H.P. Lovecraft's inane, inconceivable, maddening Mad Libs. Brought to you by Subway. Eat fresh. Here's how it works. You follow the Drabblecast on Twitter, at the Drabblecast. You wait till we announce we're Lovecraft Mad Libbing, or you look through our tweets if you missed one already, and you join in the fun. I basically snag a section of really, really just absurdly overwritten and ridiculous Lovecraft prose from one of his actual stories. You won't know which one since I'm not actually posting the story, and I'm going to take out words amongst the throng of purple rambling and replace them with your suggestions from Twitter when I tweet out prompts. For example, I tweet out maddening Madlib number three, a vast cyclopean blank. 
I take my favorite responses, fill in the blanks, and read the rewritten story on next week's show. It's good times. Here's an example from last year. The shapeless albino daughter and oddly bearded grandson stood by the bedside. Whilst from the potatoid abyss overhead, there came a phlegmatic suggestion of rhythmical surging or lapping as made by larval owls and their frenetic roombas on some distant craptacular beach. The decidedly Susian doctor present was chiefly disturbed by the seemingly limitless schmurgle hump of whipper-wallop crying their missed a phantasmic message in sneeze-alicious repetition timed onomatopediatically alongside the pants of the dying man. It was uncanny, unnatural, persnickety even. Too much, thought Dr. Aloysius Snuffleupagus, like the whole of this region that he had entered so reluctantly before in response to the strange butt noises reported as of late. Towards one o'clock, old Waitley gained consciousness and interrupted his coitus to choke out a few words to his grandson. More mimes, Willie. More mimes are coming soon. Yeah, she grows. But that strange old mime downstairs, she grows her faster. It'll be ready to serve you soon, boy. Open up the gates. Open the gates to Yogg, sawed off by use of the Oxford comma, boy. You'll find examples on page 751 of the McGiggles edition of What's-Her-Faces thingy. And then, boy, put that old pangolin to rest. Fire from Earth. Can't burn it nohow anyways. Obviously, quite ovulating, old Waitley paused, during which the flocks of armadilla die day outside adjusted their cries to the altered tempo of the antebellum yodeling of the brain-eating Nandi bear from afar. Feed it hot dogs, Willie, and mind the quantity, but don't let it grow too fast for the place, for if it bursts quarters or gets out afore ye open the mystic gates of Yog hurt, it'll all be over and no use. Only them from beyond can make it multiply and work. Only them, Willie, the old uns that wants to come back. Remember, you've got to follow us on Twitter to join in. Our Twitter handle is at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. 
Tell a friend about us, blog about us, write us a review on iTunes, spread the weird. We greatly appreciate it. And if you appreciate our stories, we also greatly appreciate your donations. That's how this thing works, folks. You support us, we support authors, and we all have a good time. If you enjoyed this week's story, consider donating to the Drabblecast by going to our website, www.drabblecast.org, and clicking on the donation button there. We greatly appreciate it. If you want more awesome Drabblecast content, not just stories, but songs, videos, reviews, all sorts of cool stuff, sign up for Drabblecast B-Sides by subscribing to the Drabblecast for an automatic $10 a month. Great value. As for you regular feed Drabblecast weirdos, tune in next week for our next story, Garen and the Hound, by Jeremiah Tolbert. It's awesome. Special thanks to our awesome episode artist, Rizda Saratoga. Our program this week was brought to you by Drabblecast Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you... We got ourselves a real live blasphemy beast here. All tussled and ready to toss. He mutters these words to his lackey. When it comes, put this in his butt. Drop him off a few miles out of Bridgedale. And we'll see if he keeps his mouth shut. He then handed over Rutabaga. Long, discolored, and dry.